0: Hello and welcome to the Sprint Podcast. The Sprint Podcast is a meeting place for all things agile and product related. In each episode, we'll talk to some of the most knowledgeable people from the space and pick their brains on what is happening out there in the world of product and agile.
1: Sam, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome back.
0: Good to be back. (laughs) Um, For those of you who didn't catch the first episode, this is Sam's second time um, on... On the podcast which is lovely so i I really appreciate you coming back and i think really my thinking was we spoke so organically and so naturally the first time and actually we could have sat there for another hour quite comfortably it was worthwhile bringing you back on um to kind of continue that chat really and i guess a little bit of time has passed um there's been some changes in the market the space is always evolving and so it's worthwhile doing it again
1: Absolutely. And um, yeah, it's good to be back. And I agree. I think we could have talked for another one or two hours, to be honest, last time. I reckon, (laughs) yeah. More than a podcast would allow.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, it's good. It's good to have people like you on. Um, As a quick introduction for those of you who who didn't um, hear the first episode with Sam on, Sam is really a, a seasoned Agile professional. Um, who's worked in the kind of coaching space for a long time. He's also hosted an Agile podcast, um, and he also set up a a non-profit as well. Um, So very much entrenched in the Agile community, well-educated in the space, lots of interesting opinions and insights to share. So hopefully we'll get some of those out here today.
1: Right. Thanks, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Is that that (laughs) all right there?
0: I can't see you, so you might be blushing. I don't know. I don't know. I'm turning red. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Mate, we, we spoke about a few things last time, um, and I suppose we were, were kind of leaning into what's happening in the space right now, potentially what the, the future of the space could look like and what that means for professionals operating in the space. Um, and there was something else that maybe cropped up a little bit in that conversation that we wanted to explore more so now. Um, and this is one of your ideas, and it's a good one. Um, and it is... What the term agile, what it meant, what it means, how that's changing, and and how we view it, right? Yeah,
1: I think that's a, a worthwhile subject to spend a little bit of time on, hmm. because I think that you know from what I'm seeing out there, um, just in talking to people in in my with my colleagues as well, um, and also just generally on social media, uh, I really if I take all of this into consideration all these different facets of sources of information, and then I ask myself, well, what does agile mean? Anyway, I'm honestly confused. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, no, I, I get that. I yeah. think I am. I think a lot of people potentially are, yeah. um, cause there's many different answers to that question.
1: Yeah. And I think you see, I think we're at this really pivotal point with agile where it's been evolving for a while. But now it's it's taking almost like a, a macro evolutionary path. It's jumped a little bit. Mm. And um, it's going into all kinds of directions. And if you look at the history, uh, you know, just the very brief history, I think it's inevitable that this would happen. The history coupled with the current economic climate, some of which we talked about last time, <laughs> then I think it's um, it's quite expected that this would happen. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Go on. It, the term agile, I, I think what we need to do, so just to take a step back, we once before as an industry, as professionals, um, we came to terms with what agile meant, right? So agile was basically um, an approach, a philosophy, a mindset, and a way of working, uh specifically with software development teams that's where it originated right it came out of that agile manifesto and that's where you can trace the history back and to of course a little bit before the manifesto you had all of these different practices going around like uh, extreme programming feature-driven development dsdm and all the other things that are mentioned in the manifesto all very software related right so they're all software development techniques Mm -hmm. methods frameworks and so on what happened i think is that um we started to move out of this single team scenario, right? So started to break the bounds of working just one or two teams. Eventually agile grew into a multi-team scenario and eventually it just became what we call scaling today. Right? So mm-hmm. already we can see how it has evolved from these ideas, um, bringing them all together like XP and so on, right, in the Agile Manifesto with a set of four values and 12 principles, um, working with teams to try and embody those principles as much as possible, but then realizing, hang on, there's a whole world around this team, right? It's called an organization, Mm -hmm. and we, we we can't actually enact a lot of these principles unless we make some changes outside the team right because we keep hitting ceilings yeah. so then you you start to break out and say okay how can i how can i address these constraints that are keeping my team from being uh, as effective as uh, effective and as efficient as they can be so then you start to look outside the team and i think eventually that's where we got to scaling because if you look at the most popular scaling approach now safe it addresses a lot of different things uh, within the current organizational paradigm, which is, you know, your typical hierarchical structure. Mm-hmm. It addresses things like portfolios. Um, it addresses things like this idea of value streams or value chains, depending on where you go and what they're called. Um, it even addresses the idea of programs. You know, initially, I don't think it's called this anymore, but Safe called the the arts level a program art, right? So that's a throwback to program management because mm-hmm. it was we're still in that lens we're still seeing things like that and and projects and programs are still being funded like that as well for the most part Hmm. so but what happened i think and sorry this might be a bit long-winded but what happened okay what happened during this is that whilst all this was happening we had this idea of coaching right that came into the, the realm of agile now I don't know exactly when this happened. I haven't really looked it up, but just from memory and from living through this, I think it first came about or was popularized with Lisa Atkin's book, um, Coaching Agile Teams, who I, by the way, have met and had lunch with, and she's a lovely, lovely woman.
0: I think she spoke um, at Scrum Australia this year.
1: She did. Yeah, she was yeah. actually here with with Epic, who I work with, oh, and um, we had a big lunch, and it was it's actually really nice. We had a lunch in Melbourne, though, not in yeah, last, nice. Sydney. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Um, Yeah, she's amazing. And actually, I was having this chat with her too, but that's another story. And so I think I
0: can hold my own as well as she can. I doubt it somehow. But here we go.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, (laughs) actually, yeah. I'll I'll try and stick to my current train and then we can come back to this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So what happened was that coaching uh, really, really took off. And I think the reason for that is because there was such a low barrier to entry, if any at all. Yes. What qualifies one person as being an agile coach? I don't know. I don't know anymore, right? Because... (laughs) I can't think of Uh, what it would have been
0: back then. I mean, how... how, Like, now, for me, that's easy because I look for people who've got the experience and can tell that story. But back then, I don't know, someone must have just put their hand up and went, I'll be an agile coach.
1: Maybe it was purely
0: academic, I don't know.
1: So this is the thing. Retrospectively, I think it's easy to say, um, oh, well given our experience of Agile coaching now, what it entails, well, you need all these things to be an Agile coach. you know? right. But I still think we see problems with this today. I still think there's a low barrier of entry to, to that today as well. As um, in
0: uh, the barrier to become a coach. Yes, to become a coach. And yes, I'll give for you an sure. example. And people do it from all types of backgrounds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Relevant and not so, relevant. So the latest example of that I've seen, uh, you can go to sleep as a teacher or an administrative assistant and you can wake up as an Agile coach. Yeah, and I'm I, not kidding. I, I know. Seen, so I'm not judging, but I'm simply relaying you know, the facts. So I think yeah. it's really important when we, when we talk about this kind of thing not to judge. Because um, we all have bias, but we shouldn't sure. judge also. Um, I've also worked personally with organizations uh, where I was helping or, or working with some of their, clientes, their, their employees whose job t- titles changed almost overnight as well. So they went to sleepers, let's say um, – uh, a HR person or a business analyst or, or something else, like not really related to the field of agile coaching. Yes. And they woke up an agile coach I because they that. were sent on this uplift training course. And from henceforth, they are agile coaches. Mm-hmm. I have seen that happen too. And I, I lived through that and I've seen, you know, and it's interesting because this was maybe two or three years ago, this particular experience. And now I look at some of these people now and, you know, they're making it, you know, it's, it's the kind of, fake it till you make it mindset, I suppose. Yeah, right. And I suppose yeah. everyone's
0: got to start somewhere, but absolutely. I think the yeah. point you're making is that perhaps there's a more obvious and organic way to do it as opposed to just being sent on a two-day course as an absolutely. HR professional and then waking up as a coach.
1: Yes, with the two-day course, you normally find these things in large consultancy-driven transformations, right? Where they have quotas to tick and we have to have X number of agile coaches trained up and ready to go from Monday next week. You know, that's the environment yeah, that, that yeah. usually happens in. Yeah. But but stick. Go, going back to that little um, uh, bit of history on Agile now and how it evolved. So I'll give you um, uh, another example of coaching and, and why I think Agile is growing in all kinds of strange directions, uh, and why this is really important for the industry now. Actually, because mm. I think I, I genuinely do think people are a little bit confused, especially new people coming into the market. They're looking at Agile and, and they're thinking what is this? Is this software development? Is this change management? Is this like consultancy stuff? Like I can't really put my finger on it, right? It is like and, it. Yeah. And I think that's a perfectly valid <laughs> perception, by the way, yeah. and stance to take. So I had this um, conversation with someone recently where they told me about their experience of running um, a systemic constellations session with a group of um People within an organization. Now, are you familiar with that, Chris, at all? I'm
0: not. No. Can you do a little explainer?
1: Um, I'll do a really quick explainer. I've never practiced this. Um, I've read about it and I've seen it practiced. Um, it's basically uh, a it's a it's a coaching technique to bring uh, a whole bunch of people together in a room and to solve systemic problems, so team team problems, problems that everyone's experiencing, Got you. within the team. You know, that's basically the long and short summary. I don't really know. (laughs) I haven't practiced it, so I don't like speaking about things I haven't actually practiced properly. Um, The problem is, this person was telling me about this three-hour session they were having with this group of people and this other senior Agile coach who was running the session. And he told me after this session, he felt really embarrassed to to call himself an Agile coach. And I said, why? He goes, because for those three hours... The the team that were in that session, were there was no interest, and they were hardly engaged in the session at all. So then mm-hmm. I got curious, and I said, well, okay, l- this is interesting. Let me just go and look up well, where the hell did this systemic constellations um, practice come from. Because I remember reading about this in 2015, um, before the ORSC certifications um, hit the market. Mm-hmm. And um, so lo and behold, it comes from family constellations therapy. So it's a therapeutic technique that can be used to treat anxiety depression family issues down generations and so on right so here's my point doing that with people and teams is essentially subjecting them to therapy but without consent right which is why it probably didn't work in in that situation and they were put off by it right so so if you're so this is so if we're taking things from all all kinds of other you know practices and fields like like therapy and trying to use them in agile that's one thing agile has grown out of software development and it, and it's grown into you know all this scaling stuff and i've seen people call agile a science right i've seen people try to define agile as a science i've seen other people try and say it's a theory in the scientific sense uh, very recently right and of course we all know about Agile, as uh, with a religious framework, wars and so on and so forth over the years. (laughs) I think that's just you know that's a
0: great way to to call it, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So put all this together. My point is this: you're coming into the market now. You're looking at what the hell does Agile actually mean? Agile is simultaneously a science, a religion, and a therapy. So, Chris, if you need any indication that it's lost its way, I think this is it.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I think you're right. And (laughs) And you know know what? Even like just sitting listening to you talk about it in that way, I'm sitting here thinking. I feel like I know less about this space now than I did four or five years ago,
1: yeah, and that's that, really interesting, maybe yeah. that's
0: because it's it's evolved into something that it wasn't or shouldn't yeah. be um and it's just grown exponentially and taken on as you say all
1: these new kind of facets in therapy and so on and so forth, which is just wild when you think about it. It is wild, and you know. Looking at this, I don't know. I haven't made up my mind yet if this is, um, you know, a positive thing or or I, I think in some ways it's a positive thing because it does have to change. It does have to evolve and grow. Sure. I think in some ways, I wouldn't say it's a negative thing. I think in some ways it's, um, um, it, it can be, some of the ways it's evolving in can be uh, not very useful, you know, to, to the core of what agility is supposed to be. Hmm. And I think I probably, right now, I'd take that stance uh, because I think it's very interesting what's happening to it.
0: I'm going to ask you in a little while what you think it is going to happen next or what should happen next. But before I do that, can I take you back to that history part of what you were discussing Yeah, go for it. So I wasn't really around, in Australia at least, when the kind of first significant agile pieces of work were kicking off. What was it? Obvious at the time for those people who were working in more traditional delivery ways, let's say waterfall, was it obvious at the time that agile was coming, and it was the next thing that people were going to invest in, and it was the next big thing in terms of delivery and so on. So did that feel like a a kind of natural shift? Was there resistance, and does it feel the same now where we're at with agile? Is there a sense that there's something else coming, or there should be something else coming?
1: that 's a really good question I'll look at the first part of your question mm-hmm. first um, so I remember so i so the agile manifesto came out in two thousand one that 's when it was released. Mm-hmm. I graduated in two thousand and two and um in two thousand and two in the u k there was a i think there was a bit of some kind of recession or something because I remember no consulting no one was hiring for a year i right. couldn 't get on a graduate scheme for a year I finally did after a year I actually applied like eight months in advance and then I got in the next year wow that's rough. um so i remember when i i had my first few consultancy gigs because when you join a consultancy um you know they put you through all kinds of things so i started off as a test analyst i did business an- analysis i did programming i did project management i did um uh, all kinds of things like they'd really just ring you put you through the ringer right um so i remember in in those journeys and in my first non consultancy gig so my when I when I finished working then I went contracting I did that quite early on in my career by the way like four years after did you um yeah four years after I graduated I just then went contracting and kind of a, for, move, a actually, state of for like a young guy yeah I know I know there's a bit of a backstory to that but maybe for another time <laughs> um so but I remember throughout these different gigs I was doing back then this this term agile being banded around and I didn't pay much attention to it uh, I was just doing what I was doing. I was still learning all this other stuff, right? I can't learn anything new yet. So I still have to like, get good and feel confident at the work I'm doing because I'm yeah. so new to the market. Um, but eventually, when I when I had my first project manager gig, um, that was in my consultancy, but independently, that was with Fujitsu Services um, back in, oh, I can't remember when. I think it was Fujitsu Services. Um, What, what I, what I found was that this thing called agile was intruding more and more like, you know, Mm. what is it, what is this thing? And so I think that, and then that's when I started to look into it, by the way, but that, and that's when I also realized, well, this is how I kind of have been thinking anyway. Right. So to me, the principles and the values of agile are just, I mean, from my, if you asked me back then, I would say, well, yeah, isn't that obvious, Right. And I think a lot of people now, when they graduate, when I talk to some graduates now, they're like, well, doesn't the industry work like that anyway? Yes. Referring to agile. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when they come into the industry, they're shocked that we still do things in a waterfall fashion, which could much better be done in more of an agile fashion. You sure. know, to give a simple example. So, so I think it, it was kind of obvious that it was coming up right back then. But I just didn't, I didn't realize how big of an industry it would be. Blow up into, mm-hmm. you know, with the certifications and the frameworks and all of that stuff. It, yeah, for me back then, well Agile was more of a, yeah, then very well, mm-hmm. very well. But Agile for me was much more of a kind of a set of guidelines back then,
0: you know. That's what it was back then. Yeah. And so then, taking that into account, do you feel like that's happening again? Is there something else that's kind of Coming in that's on your radar or or is it more of an evolution of what's already here?
1: Yeah. So here's the thing. So I have a little theory. My theory is the the reason why agiles evolved in all these crazy um directions, right? Is because when it comes to ways of working, I think we are not going to get any better at all. We're stuck. That's it. We've reached the, the end of it. And I'll explain why. We are very inventive and creative as an industry and as people in this industry. We've got ways of working and practices to make any problem uh, be solved in a much better way, in a more efficient way, in a more gamified way, in a fun way, in a way that speaks more to people's values and principles, and so on and so forth, right? We've we've got all that in spades. You look everywhere, Management 3.0, all the different, you know, practices and safe and less mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. all these scaling frameworks, uh, in scrum, just every, every way you look, there's some, there's some way to do something better than we do it now. Yes. And in terms of actually, uh, working in terms of a framework and a methodology, I don't think it's going to, we, we can't, we've, we haven't, sh- we cannot shift the needle anymore, which I think is why some people's perception of agile is that it's failed. Right. I see. So. In my work recently with ESOP, um, over the last year, I have kind of had that in mind, and I've kind—I—I've I, worked with some of the leadership team within ESOP uh, to to, and I can't—I can't say too much about the client. Sure. You you know why, but we basically came up with um, what I'm what I call a meta framework, which which is very open, and, and can, in my words, can exist in different paradigms. I'll explain what I mean. The reason why Agile's stuck, my opinion, of course, the reason why it's stuck, and it's not going to get any better, is because it's, it is, it exists in the post Taylorist paradigm of a hierarchical organization. Now we can bend and shape and reconfigure that organization as much as possible, but the paradigm of the organization is still very hierarchical Mm -hmm. and traditionally driven. That's where agile exists right now. So no matter what you do within that paradigm, you just can't break the mold because you can't break the bounds. Does that make sense? All right, great. So, So you asked me what the next thing is. I think The only way to move beyond this, and I see this is happening, and and very, very slowly people are starting to talk about it. There have been books and ideas written about this very long time ago, by the way, so this is not a new idea, Mm -hmm. but I think it's actually starting to happen. We need to break this traditional organizational paradigm, and we need to move on to the next version of what an organization looks like. So there's lots of writing about this out there. There's this book called um, uh, Teal Organizations, which I'm I'm sure you might have heard of by uh, Lulu. Now, I've read some of that book. It's basically about different, you know, an organization can have different colors, uh, teal being one of them. But it just, it, it gives a different perspective on what an organization can look like and how it can exist. But actually, aside from that, because that's a big, thick book, and I actually think it's not very accessible. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, there's this idea of open systems theory as well, OST, and um, this is a very interesting idea because what it basically says is that we're we're in a certain design principle now. I think they, from memory, I think they call it DP design right. principle or something like that. And that's, very, that's just your traditional hierarchical organization. What we need, where we need to get to is what I think they call DP2 from memory. I could be wrong about the specifics, yeah. but from memory, I think it's called DP2, Design Principle 2. What that looks like is basically, and this is not a new idea, it looks like a network of people co-creating things without that hierarchical structure. So what that means in practice is that we need to, it's moving away from autocratic systems, mm-hmm. right? As, as an emergent property. So even the companies right now are evolving or will need to evolve. And I actually think AI and all this tech around us right now is, is actually going to push this forward yeah, more. I was, I
0: was sitting there thinking, I can't just yeah, yeah. to ask I about now, AI and how that impacts this next
1: So this piece. is the thing, I think this is a perfect storm. We're approaching a perfect storm, right? Mm. And with AI and all of that stuff coming in, with this, with the fact that we've hit the wall with Agile, people are saying Agile has failed, and in some ways it has, but actually it hasn't. It's it's organisations have failed to move on. That's yes. what it is. Yes. Therefore, Agile has failed because it exists within the organisation, mm. right? So, moving away from autocratic systems as an emergent property, I think is happening now. Um, so, what that means is that control into team coordination deliverables definition, um, choosing what metrics to be, to be measured by, all of these things, which we do in delivery, they have to be moved to the group who do the work. And that means away from the management layer, away mm-hmm. from the hierarchical layer, that they are literally moved to the group to do the work. True autonomy, right? Not fake autonomy, which you find in 90% of you know organizations today. Yeah. I think that's where we have to head. Um, and what that also means for agile coaching, I think, is that the group will have to eventually learn to coach themselves. And this is something I've been, I've been, um, really <laughs> trumpeting up and down ESOP, ESOP if you <laughs> like in their leadership team, because of the very first thing on the transformation roadmap that I designed for them was we need to build internal capability. We can't mm-hmm. keep relying on external people to come in. You know, and just sit with teams and coach them. Basically, we need to teach them how to fish, and this has always been my philosophy. By the way, as a consultant, teaching clients how to fish, so they can do, the do yourself out of work. Well, that's the whole point, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it? You know, because you know there are so many companies out there that I can afford to do myself out of work with this client and get them on their way, and then move mm-hmm. on to the next mm-hmm. one and do the same thing. So, Great. anti-capitalist, maybe I don't know. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I would say ethical, right? Ethical, ethical that's it, that's it, yeah. yeah. Um, so if the, if this group are coaching themselves, then it goes to, it stands to reason that over time, Chris, uh, they can do their own product planning, their own strategizing, their own road mapping, their own prioritizing. Why? Because learning organizations continuously improve. This is the, I think the, excuse me, the wet dream of agile, right? <laughs> I love that you've right. got that phrase in there. This, yeah, you can was edit not that. that, yeah. Um, but this is where we where we want to get to. And I wanna bring something else into the conversation at this point. Go on. Right now, there's not enough realization that that teams and organizations are socio-technical in their nature. Can you, and this can you is explain really important. Me? So we're we're social, right? People who need to collaborate, to talk to each other, uh, to build things to create, to sit in rooms, to brainstorm, to tell stories to each other. But we also are technical. We're incredibly technically focused. We have all these tools. If we're talking about software development, then that's going to be our, our specialisms, our focus. But it's not just about software development, and it's not just about that social, creative, collaborative mm-hmm. aspect. It's you need you need to bash these things two things together. So all teams, almost all teams now are socio-technical in their nature, and that's really important to understand because I've seen a lot of people try to bring Agile back and say, well, Agile is just about software development. It was once just about software development. But as we've just discussed, it's moved on a hell of a lot since then. Yeah. Right, So we need to take into account other things, which is why, going back into ESOP, some of the work I've been doing with them um, really explicitly takes into account all these things that I'm I'm telling you now. The socio-technical nature of teams, and so on, and so I've also designed some of the language in the in the soft transformation to reflect this, to to plant those seeds, you know, in in people's minds. That, That's cool. Yeah, this, yeah, I think it is actually. I've actually done um, uh, an internal presentation about the work, specifically about the work I'm doing there. I did that about four or five weeks ago. I'm doing a public one next month in July oh, in nice. Melbourne, so I'll let you know about that.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. How can, is it uh, virtual, face to uh, face, Face
1: to face is going to be in the CBD somewhere in Melbourne. Amazing. keep me yeah. posted. I will. Yeah. Um. um so, unfortunately,
0: so, I won't be able to go, but I can certainly pump it out, and I'm sure there'll be people listening to this who will be interested as well.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Thanks, mate. Yeah. So I'll just finish off the thought now, and then yeah, and go then on. we can. Move. So this idea of you know true autonomy within teams, this network of teams rather than hierarchical uh, structures. What it does, it promotes continuous improvement, which we all know about and love. It promotes deeper learning and, and it provides the environment for building these a multidisciplinary capability over time. And that's really important. So you've heard of T-shaping, mm-hmm. where you have uh, the depth. So so uh Chris, you're a recruiter, maybe your specialist, your depth is you know, recruitment, the skill of recruitment and everything that entails. Mm. But you know what, you're also a great podcast and you can interview really well. So your breadth, the T that goes across, the bit that goes across, um, you've got probably got loads of other skills that you do, right, to help around, to help mm. out around the office or help your colleagues, do podcasting, you know, all that stuff. So we are multifaceted people. We're not just good at one or two things.
0: Sure.
1: This kind of idea of T-shaping, and and there are very there are other letters as well. People use like m shapes, but we won't get into that now. It just basically means multidisciplinary capabilities. Um, we need to develop these things over time. And yeah. when you put te- people and teams together in a network, in a networked organization, where where they where they intuitively know how to collaborate and who to speak to to solve problems very fast. And if they don't know, then they quickly build those networks to learn how to do those things. In that environment, skills spread around quickly and people grow in a much more multifaceted way. Of course.
0: That makes sense. It makes sense on paper. I, 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 and theoretically, I understand mm. how that works and why it would work. Mm. Question I've got. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So for me, I so I I really don't like talking about too much about theory and and stuff like this. I sure. really like to bring these things back down, uh, and make and, and put them into plain English as much as I can, which is what I'm trying to do now. And that's only because I think this kind of thing needs to be accessible to everybody. It yeah. certainly needs to be accessible to some of the leaders that I speak to. So you will ne- you will hardly ever, in fact, find me um, using you know, technical language or obscure references or, or agile terminology even when I'm engaging with leadership. Well, because it it just,
0: even in this scenario, I, yeah. I'm following what you're saying. Yeah, you know. that,
1: that's good to hear, yeah. yeah no, no. <laughs> um, um, just to finish off this thought, go on. What, what all this does, it, it promotes something called range. And range is something very interesting. There's actually a really good book called Range. Um, it's called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. It's by a man called David Epstein. And what he's basically saying is that you've got a higher chance of being a much more successful, richer, and w- more well-rounded person if rather than specialize in one thing, you actually uh, specialize in multiple things. You, you, know, you, you expose yourself and your brain, your mind to multiple things, and you try to at least get a rudimentary understanding of these things and grow in each of these things mm. as well. Because what happens is that when you... When you work in, let's say, two industries, for example, or two, you do two different things which you consider, uh, which people look at you and say, yeah, you're good at those two things. You're known mm-hmm. for those two things, right? What happens is that you start to synthesize your experience between these two seemingly different things. And then you start to come up with very unique ways to solve problems, right? Because you're synthesizing your experience between these two things. I've personally gone on this journey as well. Um with with all of the acting work i do i don't know if we talked about that last time i can't remember no
0: you just dropped a bombshell there right? okay. right. as well eh? Yeah,
1: i am um a paid one too <laughs> so oh, it's yeah. not just a hobby yeah yeah uh yeah on, and tell, I've... Me, tell me about it <laughs> all right uh, we'll stop here and then we'll take a quick diversion um, <laughs> yeah, yeah well i actually have a degree in film studies as well as computer science it's not right yeah and um for a long time you know when i graduated i just said to myself i can't do the arts because i don't think i'm going to make any money mm-hmm. you know the early 2000s were a pr- pretty dismal for work as far as i remember and um so i just put the the film stuff and the and the acting stuff on the back burner and it and really around 2012 i started doing acting classes again to pick everything up uh but then i st- i did that for about a year or so and i did yeah. a short film Um, I think in 2012, no, in 2013, I did a short film because that's when I was about to start working with Microsoft. Um, And then uh, fast forward to about 2018, when I moved to Australia, uh, I started doing acting classes I thought, why not let me pick it up? Long story Mm -hmm. short, Chris, Mm -hmm. I did a whole year at NIDA in Australia, um, the National Institute of Dramatic Arts. Right, lovely. Uh, they're a really big acting school, and um, I did a whole year there whilst doing a full time job, <laughs> so it no was a part time, yeah, um, part time actor studio course. And then after that, uh, graduated at the end of 2019. And after that, uh, I started doing lots of plays, uh, quite a bit of screen work. Um, That's so cool, man. I just cool, finished man. a play. I'm in play right now. Uh, yeah, so it, it is cool. And That's what good. have you? Yeah, thanks, man. Do you know um, what I keep finding? The more I talk to people.
0: Even yeah. in this space, and other kind of technical, in quotation marks, roles. There's always a creative side to everybody. Always. It's so important, I isn't think. it? I'm it a is. massive. I'm massive on this. So as for Sharon, um, I've been a, a sort of closet musician for many, many years. Um, up until recently, I, I started a band. Um, oh wow! Amazing. Yeah, we have. Yeah, we haven't. We're not getting very far. It's very hard to do anything creative. As a prof- you know professional with a full time job, as you know, tell me about um, it. <laughs> and find time to carve out time to do this. So things are progressing very slowly, but absolutely loving playing in a band and writing and creating and having that time every week. It's like um, it's like a meditation for me. It's amazing.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Likewise, and I think you know the more you you get into that, I am sure you will find some connections somewhere in your mind between what you do for a living and the music that you make. Because sure, I somewhere. have found, yeah, I'm, I'm sure of it, if you haven't already, because I have found that in, in acting. And I've, it helps me very much with obviously the obvious things like public speaking and stuff like that, right. which I've always kind of done anyway. But even the concept of user stories, right? I had no idea that uh, Konstantin Stanislavski, who is essentially the, um, the man uh, where all acting uh, schools sprung from, Right, hmm. So, you know, you had a method acting and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. All came from Stanislavski. It's all offshoots of his work. Um, So whenever you go to acting school, the first thing you do is you usually learn about Stanislavski and, and what he taught and, and you read his books. He's got this idea, which is a user story in everything but name. And this was in what, the 18th, 19th century, Russia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And I've used this. There I used go. this at Telstra. I used this to, to help my training at Telstra and they loved it. So, so it, it was really, it's just really interesting.
0: The only, um, the only use I've had so far for my musical creativity is for the opening soundtrack to the podcast. <laughs> um, oh, which, brilliant! Yeah, you haven't heard yet. It sounds like, I'll be honest with you, it sounds like something from a seventies dirty movie. <laughs> but I, I had a moment of creativity and I went with it and it stuck. So that's what we've I thought we I have
1: to be honest, Chris, uh, I'm not sure what 70s dirty movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: No problem. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, okay. there's, there's other uses down the line, maybe. Who knows? Yeah.
1: So just to completely finish this off now. So, what I'm saying, so you asked a question just to go back to that thread, so mm. to make it a bit easy for our mm. listeners as well, where is Agile going next? So, to, everything I've said can be kind of summed up this in, in this way. Organizations are very slowly, and they need to evolve into what what I suppose you would call a non-dominant hierarchy, where people are autonomous in the true sense of the word and self-sufficient in the true sense of the word. And just to go back at the work I'm doing with ESOP, so this meta framework I talked about, I mentioned very briefly actually facilitates the bridge between your typical dominant hierarchical structures in organizations and going across to this idea of, you know what, we really need to make the teams completely independent from the hierarchy. So that's, I'll just leave it there. And, and, and I think that's where Agile is going next. But here's the thing, when it when organizations go that way, I don't think agile will exist the way it exists now. So that's the thing. It will thing, have isn't to fundamentally it? change.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's almost like it won't be agile at all. It will be. It will be called something else. Exactly. Be a totally different yeah. flavor. I wonder if that's like a. It's two years away. It's round the corner. It's five years, it's ten years. I wonder. I
1: think personally, I think it will be a very slow transition. Mm-hmm. Um, but with with AI, and with all of the potential that that actually brings. And liberates us from right. It might expedite things slightly. Yeah. But I think that can go in one of two ways. You know, humans. <laughs> you know, there's all these negative things that humans can Man, do with it. I have eye. listened to too many podcasts about it. Yeah, I, I know, was. I know, <laughs> I have to <laughs> But I'm hopeful, and I'm quite optimistic, and I, I really it think well. it will help. Yeah. So, final question then:
0: What can an agile coach who's listening to this podcast do? to ready and prepare themselves for what may be coming next.
1: So here's the challenge to all Agile coaches out there and Agile professionals in general. We all have these great ideas. We all have these great theories. We all find this, these nuggets of research and history which we try and relate to Agile, and that's all good. And you know we should always encourage that kind of thing. The challenge for us, how do we translate that into practice? It's no good just talking about it right all the time. How do we actually take action and for me that's where the challenge is And how do we do so in a way that's accessible to people because my God Chris, the stuff I read out there I just switch off after the second paragraph right oh, man, I'm it's sure. like it's like you don't need to use this obscure language <laughs> it just it's off-putting even though we may know what you're talking about you know if you if you think about it who who is their audience people should think about who is their audience when they when they're talking about this stuff it's certainly not organizations and leaders in those organizations because no one's going to try you know watch this podcast or this youtube video or whatever or read this article and and say yeah i'm going to contact this person that sounds amazing <laughs> it just doesn't happen right yeah. you need we need to speak business language we need to speak plain english language right uh, well, whatever native language that we speak, yeah, yeah. we need to be native basic uh, language. And um, we need to, the skill we need to develop and get better at, I think, is translating these complex and interesting ideas into uh, basic language and communicating that effectively and building a case uh, for leaders, especially, because it has to start with leaders, as to why these things that we have in our heads, that we've devised, are a good idea to try and implement as part of maybe, let's say, a transformation or an experiment or something like that.
0: a brilliant note to end our conversation on. That was yeah. amazing.
1: Thanks, man. I mean, I think I went on a bit too long. I know Not we wanted fault. to talk about something else. <laughs>
0: no, honestly, we said let it be organic. Let's see where we go. Fair enough. I yeah. could sit again. I could sit and listen to you forever. I feel like I learn a lot when we chat, um yeah. which is amazing. So hopefully, everybody else has as well. Bro you. <music>